Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Raven's Watch. Before we get into today's episode, I would just like to mention where you can find me on social media. On Instagram, you could find me at The Raven's Watch, all one word. On Twitter, you could find me at David underscore Lee underscore Corbo. That's C-O-R-B-O. I do most of my interacting there, so that would be a good place to find me if you got Twitter. Uh, we are starting a subreddit. It is r slash the Ravens Watch. Our YouTube channel has launched. That'll be at the Ravens Watch as well. And we are currently trying to get a Discord up and running. That'll be the Ravens Watch. Um, the link for that will be in the description for the episode below. Uh, you can also reach out to me on my email theravenswatch777 at gmail.com. And that's where you want to reach me if you'd like to be a guest on the show. So if you've had a paranormal experience, or maybe you know quite a bit about some esoteric occult knowledge that you'd like to share, maybe you've been in a secret society and you want to talk about it. Maybe you've got a particular conspiracy theory that you know very well, and you'd like to talk about it on the show. You can reach out to me at the Ravens Watch 777 at gmail.com. All right, let's get into today's show. Welcome to the Ravens Watch. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Raven's Watch. I am your host, The Raven, also known as David Lee Corbo. This is my uh, government name. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, guys. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, this show is going to be much more of an interview-based interview show. I'll be interviewing guests about their paranormal experiences, their area of expertise when it comes to esoteric occultism, uh, conspiracy theory, paranormal, everything that, that that you can imagine is under that umbrella. Uh, in order for you to get to know me and understand what put me on this path in the first place, uh, I'm going to share with you some of my experiences. Some of the bigger ones, at least, the ones that really sort of uh, sparked my intrigue as a younger person and ultimately is responsible for leading me down the path that leads me here to you. So let's start with, and just so you know the nature of these, so you know that they're not going to be uh, super boring, like I saw, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but like I saw some lady in a white dress in a window one time, and now suddenly I'm balls deep in the occult. That is not the case. So I've had everything from... UFO experiences, alien encounters, demonic entities, shadow people, all that sleep paralysis, the hat man. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a couple of those today, and hopefully that helps you to understand me as the host of the show. All right. So one of my earliest experiences that I would say is, is most meaningful, because I had a lot of experiences as a kid. But they're little blips, and I'm sure they'll come out as the podcast goes on. Uh, but for now, we're going to stick to some of the more impactful ones. So when I was about 12 years old, I lived in a small town in New Jersey called Carteret. And Carteret was a small suburb. Within Carteret, there was a small cluster of uh, we called it the woods my friends and i called it the woods it was not the woods it was a small patch of trees that you know you could hide from prying eyes in and do all kinds of crap that kids probably shouldn't be doing right so and i, I think that's kind of normal everybody as a t as a child you know i'm talking 11 years old 12 years old you sort of find the nooks and crannies of your hometown and that's where you hang out we would hang out <laughs> under bridges and things like that. So one day we're in this small wooded area and within that small wooded area, there was a Creek and next to that Creek grew tall grass. And so as children, we used our feet to flatten out the tall grass and create paths through it. So one day my friend and I, Shane, his name was 
Shane and I are going through the paths that we made in the tall grass. And our friends are just outside of it. And they're playing on these dirt ramps that we dug and we built up. And they're playing on their bikes. And Shane and I are making our way through this maze that we've created through the tall grass. And the tall grass is like, you know, it's like six feet tall. And like I said, I was 11 or 12. My buddy Shane might have been nine or 10. And so it was significantly taller than we were. So as we're going through this tall grass, suddenly off to our left, something is rustling. Uh, rustling is not the word. Something is moving rapidly through the tall grass and it's coming to us and it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be on top of us any second. Just so you have some context, I grew up in a house where we had tons of animals, dogs. Uh, I think we had an owl for a little bit. We had turtles and tortoises, raccoons, guinea pigs, cats, all kinds of stuff. My mother was the Dr. Doolittle of Elizabeth, New Jersey. So I was very familiar with animals. Um, and I wasn't scared of them either. My mother always taught me not to be afraid of dogs. And for good reason. If you run from them, you trigger that prey instinct. They're going to chase you. I always knew that. So I sort of expected, and mind you, this happened very fast, for whatever this was to be a dog. It's the only thing that makes sense. Carteret is, like I said, a suburb. And we had the occasional deer, which was not very common when I was a child, but, you know, it, it happened. So wildlife was scarce. And this thing that was moving fast and, and, and heavier than a, a raccoon or anything like that. But look, to be honest, I didn't think that much. This happened very quickly. Probably thought dog. This thing is running towards us, and my friend and I recoil. And we grab one another, Shane and I, and we, we just sort of stiffen up. And before you know it, this thing is on us already. So like I said, we're stomping paths through the tall grass. These paths are not that wide. We're making them by flattening the tall grass with our feet. And suddenly this thing is right in front of us. It reveals itself onto the trail still in a full sprint and what I saw was bipedal excuse me what I saw was bipedal and small like a toddler small I'm talking you know a four or five year old and it was fast and it was dark. So, as an 11-year-old, this, to me, registered as a, as a baby, as a toddler. So I see a stark naked black toddler run out in front of my friend and I. I don't know, five, six feet away. If that. And it's weird because it's been so long since I told the story. I just had this moment where I sort of could see it in my mind. I haven't seen it in a long time. And, you know, you get so detached from memories, you kind of wonder if you remember them the right way. Um, but, yeah, I just had a little moment where I was able to sort of go back there. Uh, and as quickly as it appears, it disappears into the other side of the path. And never minds us, just blows right by us, doesn't care at all. And my friend Shane and I, we snap out of it, we run out of the tall grass, past our friends, <laughs> down the street, out of the woods, all the way to the park. And uh, and then it, for a while it remained this story that I would tell people, like, we saw a butt-naked black baby in the woods running through the tall grass. But Shane shut his eyes. Uh, I've reached out to him so many times since then. Hey, do you remember this black baby boy sprinting through the forest butt naked when we were kids? No. He remembers the event. 
And he says he remembers it was terrifying, but he also does not remember what he saw. I think he shut his eyes or something like that. I saw it. And I didn't struggle with explaining it. You know, it wasn't like I saw some monster and it haunted me for years. Like, how do I explain this thing away? No, I saw a butt-naked black toddler sprinting through the tall grass in the woods. And it was only when I became like 16 years old that I said, well, that doesn't make any, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. How could you, how could you, if you wanted to pause this show right now, find a creek, find some tall grass, phalaris, something or another, I think is the technical term for it. Strip down to, you know, your birthday suit and start sprinting through it. I don't think you're going to move that fast. I don't think you're going to move that gracefully. I think you're going to hurt your feet. You're going to get scratched and stabbed in places you don't want to get stabbed in. And I just, I don't think you're going to move like this, this baby boy did, this baby black toddler. And that started to not sit right with me. And there was only certain aspects or certain attributes, characteristics of this child that I was certain about. The things that I was certain about was it was bipedal. You know, because I'm really trying to rationalize this. And I'm always been open to the idea that I'm wrong. Uh, wouldn't be the first time. But there were certain things that I could say for certain or, or definitively. He was bipedal. I, I He is a stretch. I didn't see a dong. Uh, thankfully, so that that's that's an assumption right there. But bipedal is the truth. Uh, black, almost dark gray, like a charcoal gray. This is daytime, by the way. This was not nighttime. This was daytime. It was well lit. I mean, you know, I'm still in the shade of tall grass, but and and I'm enshrouded in a small wooded area. But it is daytime. And this thing's skin was dark, like like the color charcoal. And it was fast. Very fast. And it was small. Very small. Like a four-year-old. So those four things, I can confidently say, are facts. And the reason I told you the story about the dogs before, having all these dogs and animals, is to say that I'm familiar with animals. So when something runs by me and it's bipedal, I I know <laughs> I know what a dog looks like. I know what a raccoon looks like. I had them as pets. I I'm familiar with them. None of them did that. Got up on their hind legs and sprinted through the house. If they did, I'd be telling you that story. So and, and one of the things that I discovered as I got older was it happened to be the same year as the Carteret UFO sighting. So if you go to Google and you type in Carteret UFO sightings, I think it might have been 2001 or 2002. I was 11 or 12, so it was about that time. You'll find several lights in the sky over the local McDonald's and Turnpike entrance that were there from daytime till nighttime. People came and they stood around McDonald's and stared at the sky some local news reporters came out and did stories on it and interviewed people. So do with that what you will. So that was a big event for me. And then there was another one a few years later. And this one felt very personal. Not, not to say that the little, you know, black boy thing wasn't personal. That was personal. I'm not taking anything away from him. But something a little bit more deeply ingrained in my in my family as well as me. So let me just get into it. Uh, when I was a kid, my mother uh, and my father separated. And so my mom was dating a man for a long time. And for all intents and purposes, he was my stepfather, although they never married. But I lived in his house for from six to 15 years old. So what is that? Eight years. And... Uh, during that time, I spent a great deal of time 
uh, with his mother. Her name was Barbara, and she was like a grandmother to me. Once again, for all intents and purposes, she was my grandmother. Barbara raised me, and and to this day, I still have to thank her for instilling a moral compass in me and things like that. But one of the things she didn't do very well was try hard not to traumatize me. And by that, I mean she would tell me at a rather inappropriate age. I'm a father now. I have an eight-year-old. I would not be telling him these stories. But she told me stories when I was eight, nine, ten. She told a lot of them to me over a long period of time because it was more than one. And these stories are going to sound familiar to you. But keep in mind, at the time, we didn't have the internet. Barbara certainly didn't have the internet when she was experiencing these things. And so we had no context for what it was that she was telling me. And it was horrifying. So let's get into it. When Barbara was a kid, she had a sister, Barbara and Dot. Now, Barbara and Dot, they lived in Elizabeth with their mother. I don't know if their father was in the picture, but... Uh, Barbara would often be visited in the middle of the night. So from Barbara's perspective, the story goes something like this. She would wake up and feel unsettled, as if something was in the room with her. She would quickly find out that she was frozen and could not move. She was effectively paralyzed. However, she could move her eyeballs uh, this is a familiar uh, phenomenon to most people. If you're a fan of this show and you're here listening, I imagine you know what sleep paralysis is. And for the uninitiated, it is a mode that your body goes into where your body becomes paralyzed so that you don't act out your dreams. I mean, that's a... I'm paraphrasing. It's a very rudimentary way of explaining it, but you get the gist of it. And I would say that's effectively the gist of it. So Barbara wakes up. She cannot move. She's terrified and she feels this presence in her room. Suddenly she shifts her gaze over to the other side of the room and realizes that there is a man standing there with a duster coat and a brimmed hat, much like an old school detective. You ever see those signs that say like a neighborhood watch or something like that? And it's got the guy with the white eyes and the low hat and the popped collar. That's pretty much what she saw. And her response to that was to be filled with more terror. And to pull her blanket slowly because she's kind of uh, getting out of paralysis. Slowly pull her blanket over her head. And hope that it goes away and she said sometimes she dropped the blanket and it would still be there and then sometimes she'd just be sitting under that blanket till the sun came up and that thing finally disappeared so one day she is at the breakfast table with her sister and they're discussing the events of the night prior barbara was visited and dot confirms that she also saw the visitor which is very interesting, because if we take a pause for a minute, I am comfortable with the idea that sleep paralysis is a clinical event. It's a, a very natural physical response that the body has in order to protect itself from acting out its dreams. I'm willing to go there, and I'm even willing to go as far as to say when your eyes open and you're paralyzed, that's going to instill a certain amount of fear in you. And when you're in a dark room and you're in a hallucinogenic state from being partially asleep and partially awake, that your eyes may then play tricks on you and you may start to make monsters out of the shadows that are in the corners of your room. I'm willing to entertain those things and I can see the logic in that. What I can't see is how two separate individuals experience the same thing in the same night and see the same being. That is different. So... Let's get back into it. As they're at the breakfast table and they're discussing what happened to them, their mother overhears. They're speaking initially in hushed tones. I imagine they don't want their mother to hear for a multitude of reasons. Maybe she'll be dismissive. Um, I know that when my son tells me something spooky, 
I I'm not dismissive, but I don't. I just kind of go off. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's changed a little bit as he's gotten older. But when he was really young and he would tell me strange things as children do, I would go. Yeah, who knows? that's crazy. Anyway, you know, and we'd, we'd move on from it or I tell him not to be worried. And so I think the reason they were speaking in hushed tones is most likely so they can continue the conversation before they were outright dismissed. But their mother overhears it and she chimes in and she says, I saw it too. And she's in a separate bedroom. Um, I don't know how old Barbara was at the time. I don't know that her mother was confirming to, you know, a 10-year-old that she saw some greasy uh, trench-coated demon. Maybe Barbara was 14, 15. That's a little bit different. So Barbara has these experiences throughout her life. Even when she moves, that doesn't stop it. It'll happen in a different place. And it happened into adulthood. Periodically, uh, unpredictably. Although Barbara did say that she drew some sort of correlation as to it being a bad omen. That it somehow warned of, de and I, warned of death. And I imagine that that's because, you know, shortly after she experienced it, she probably had a death of a, a close loved one or a close friend. So that was the correlation that Barbara drew. Now... These are the stories that flavor my childhood. Fast forward to when I'm 16 years old, and one of my aunts is telling me a story about my biological grandmother who passed when I was six. Now, the story goes something like she was often visited by small shadow people, and when they visited her, she would be unable to move off of the bed she'd be paralyzed those are my words not my aunt she just said she wouldn't be able to move and as well as small beings there was a a bright white light very powerful light that would rise up into her window and she would scream for her mother to come her mother would come up the stairs open the door and before they could get in the room this thing would shoot out of the window, effectively making my grandmother look crazy. Uh, now, the story gets much more interesting when my aunt tells me, yeah, she said she figured out what was going on with her. She said that she read a book and that uh, she begged your mother not to read that book. So my grandmother begged her daughter not to read this book. Whatever she discovered in the book was so harrowing that she couldn't bear her daughter looking at it. Which is interesting. So, naturally, I go to my mother and I say, Hey, Mom, do you remember a book that grandmother... <laughs> grandmother. That grandmother told you not to read. Uh, do you remember the name of that book? And she goes, Yeah, I remember that book. It was Communion by Whitley Stryber. So some of you are probably familiar with Whitley Stryber. Uh, it's my understanding that he's been dismissed as a kook, but um, I'm sure lots of people could say the same about me. So I go ahead and head over to the local Barnes and Nobles and I acquire said book, uh, Communion by Whitley Stryber, and I start to read it, which I never went out of my way at that age, what did I say, 16, to, to read a, a book. I might have been a little bit older, actually. I might have been about 18, because I remember I had a job as a security guard. And if I was a 16-year-old as a security guard, that place was not well secured. Um, but either way, I get the book from Barnes & Nobles, and I start to read it. I love how easily my mother gives up the beans, right? She never read it for herself, but she was like, yeah, oh yeah, that's what it's called. So I get the book and I start reading it. And it turns out that Communion by Whitley Stryber is, if I'm remembering correctly, it's an amalgamation of different abductee experiences that Whitley Stryber has uh, kind of bunched together and, and put into book form. And he's trying to draw correlations between all the experiences. And there's also a fair bit of regressive hypnosis involved, which a lot of people will tell you that regressive hypnosis is 
a very faulty method of remembering uh, potentially traumatic events because when you're in a state of hypnosis, you're very open to suggestion. And so it's very dependent on the psychiatrist, psychologist. I'm not smart enough to tell you the difference between the two of them, but it's very dependent on them to be careful in the ways that they nudge you because you could you could fabricate an entire story based off of them kind of guiding you down this path verbally. So either way, within the book, there's these regressive hypnosis accounts and there's these abduction accounts and there's quite a many of them and he uh, gets the best ones together and starts to draw these threads that all of these abduction experiencers have in common. In other words, almost a checklist. Well, when you were abducted, did you experience this? Did you experience that? Did you experience that? And then eventually it starts to paint a bigger picture the more evidence you get together. And a lot of the attributes of what they experience sounded a lot like Barbara. I mean, when we're talking about the paralysis uh, being visited by an entity, a shadow person, this unbelievable feeling of terror that you've never felt in your life. And then, of course, for my grandmother, the bright white light in her window, um, the presence of small shadow people. So there's all these common threads, and I'm starting to see this, this bridge between two women that have never met. My grandmother, biological grandmother passed away when I was six, and then at seven, I met Barbara, and she continued to be my grandmother for the time. And yet they have the same, they have the same story practically. And maybe it varies in, you know, maybe a Hatman experience isn't exactly the same thing as an alien abduction. But at the time, you know, 17, 18 years old, uh, the internet was just starting to get to the point where like those stories, you could find them. You could find a lot of people talking about them, whereas four years ago, there wasn't. So Whitley Stryber, he draws all these connections and it lights me up. I've got to start asking people now, have you ever seen something like this? Have you ever seen something like a man with a hat and he's he's a silhouette? Not By the way, you can't see his face. I don't know if I mentioned that. You can't see his face. He is a silhouette. He's like a shadow, but he's much denser than a shadow. He looks like a, a just a blacked out man. Uh, and so do the shadow people. So I start asking around. I find out my father sees him regularly. Like, what? My father sees him regularly. Um, and... Next thing you know, I discovered that thousands of people all over the world have the same experiences. So now we're getting to a, another thing that I can't explain. Like I said, I was willing to entertain the idea that this is all a physiological event or a psychological event, rather. And what I couldn't explain was how multiple people could see the same being in the same night, in the same place, and how he looked the same all over the world. This duster coat and this wide-brimmed hat. And then, of course, the shadow people as well uh, is a worldwide phenomenon. The sleep paralysis, the inexplicably bright white light. And so I'm starting to really feel like this is important to, to me and my family. And even though it's a worldwide phenomenon, it feels very personal. And so what ends up happening is I have, a, I have some thoughts while, while I'm doing this, while I'm scouring the internet for whatever information I can find, and I'm realizing, like, I'm going to have this experience myself. It's going to come. Uh, and just, just it's one of those you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back. You know, if, if I go and watch nothing but Transformers for three weeks, I'm going to have, you know, nightmares about Optimus Prime. It's prime time. Like, it's, it's going to happen. And so I, I, I knew this. And I also knew that that didn't necessarily mean that it was real. That 
maybe even that lent itself to it being more of a psychological phenomenon than an actual phenomenon. An actual flesh and blood in this realm reality. And so, sure, sure enough, one night I go to sleep and I'm, you know, like I said, 18 years old, something like that. I wake up and I realize I can't move. And I've experienced sleep paralysis before at this point. One other time, um, I was, I, I woke up suffocating face down in my pillow with someone pressing into my back. And this didn't last long. The whole thing lasted like five seconds. It felt like a long time. But I remember thinking my mom was screwing with me. My mom is certainly not the type of person that would try to murder me. But like maybe she would razz me up a little bit. You know, she would like punch me in the shoulder and shit when she was feeling froggy. And so I'm thinking my mom's on my back and she's she's screwing with me. And then I the next thought is my mom is trying to kill me. And then the next thought is, this is not my mom. There's an intruder in the house, and they're trying to kill me. And then finally, I regain enough function to flip over and gasp for air, and there's no one there. And it sounds terrifying, but it was actually a very small moment in time. Yeah, it was a very heightened moment, but, you know, you flip over and nobody's there. There's nothing else to be said about it. You move on with your life. So I had experienced it once before. I wake up in the middle of the night now. I'm looking around the room and I'm realizing I can't move. And I'm I'm thinking very coherently. I kind of go to myself like, okay, we knew this was going to happen. Let's, uh, and then before I could even finish that thought, the shadow of a man walks across the room. And as soon as he does, and this is a shadow, I mean a casted shadow, not a silhouette of a man, but the shadow of a man casted from the light on the window that I can't see. I can't see it because it's in my peripheral vision, but I can tell this is the shadow of a man moving across the room. There's a light source in the window. It's it's casting that shadow. And as soon as I see that, my body locks up. There is this really loud electrical buzzing sensation and sound, so I can hear it audibly. And... I can feel it to the point where it locks me out. You know, it straightens my legs out, straightens my arms out, and I black out. I come to, and suddenly, my head is next to my girlfriend's feet. And my feet by her head. And I'm looking at the other side of the room. Everything makes sense, and everything looks just fine. It's not weird or anything. Not like a dream where, like... Things are weird, but you don't really pay attention to it that much. Nothing was weird. Everything made sense. I was in my head, you know, behind my eyes, looking around in the room, trying to make sense of what's going on. And all of a sudden, this massively bright white light comes pouring out of the closet. And there's no light source in the closet. Uh, we just had a, a sheet or a curtain over the closet. <clears throat> And there was no light switch. There was nothing in there. There was no light bulb in the closet. And yet, still, bright white light pouring out of it. And then, as soon as I see that, I lock up again. This buzzing electrocution sensation is happening. I can hear it. I can feel it. I black out. I wake up the next morning. And there's nothing else to be said about it. Um, but it's and, and then you just kind of move on with your life. And I think by now, you can sort of see what would make me so interested i mean when your grandmother your step grandmother your father you thousands of other people on the internet are all having this shared experience it becomes very interesting and if you start to research things like sleep paralysis and alien abductions it inevitably kicks the door open to all sorts of other things and so it's also partially how I became a sort of conspiracy theorist or became interested in the occult. Um, and you guys will learn more about my relationship to that as we go on in these episodes. Um, and the last one that I want to share today is, I would say, the most impactful one. So my family and I, we moved to Las Vegas. And when I say my family, I mean me my wife, and my son. 
put everything that we owned in a tiny Elantra, and we drove 42 hours or 43 hours from New Jersey all the way to Las Vegas. Hell of a road trip. Do not recommend. Although it went off without a hitch, and it was actually about as good as you could imagine it being, being in a car for four days. So uh, we spent some time out there, and because of some personal family issues back home in New Jersey, we decided it was best that we move back because there was a, a terminal illness. We wanted to be close to them in case anything happened. And also we missed our family and friends. So we moved back. Now, even though we moved back for a good reason, it felt sort of like defeat. Not only that, by this time I was already married, I was already a father, and now we're moving in with the in-laws. And there is several degrees of separation from them and I. They happen to be Jehovah Witnesses. I was not religious growing up. And so um, I had my ideas, I suppose, about Jehovah Witnesses. And they were um, very formal is how I would put it. And so it was just dry and it was weird and it was distant. And so I think I, I sort of slipped into this depressive state where I got into this cycle of going to work, coming back, locking myself in a bedroom and playing video games till it was time to go to sleep. And then I'd wake up, go to work, come back, play video games. And we're in one little room with two air mattresses, one from my for my wife and I, and one for my son. And I think that it it was even worse because I knew I wasn't being a good husband, and I knew I wasn't being a good father, and I certainly wasn't being a good son-in-law. Um, I was distancing myself from everybody. I, I hated the situation, and I knew that I had to step up to the plate and sort of swallow my pride and, you know, do my duties. But instead, I skirted them, and I played Red Dead Redemption 2 every day. Uh, great game. I'm glad it was the backdrop to this experience. Um, and I don't think you get away from those things. I think the internal narrator knows when you're dropping the ball. Mine certainly did. And I think that there are entities that feed off of that feeling. Negativity, depression, sadness, anger, rage all of which I was feeling. So I end up having this four-night escapade that solidified for me. I may not know everything, but I know that we don't know everything. And there are things that are real that we'd rather not have them be real. So the four nights go like this. Night number one, I'm fast asleep, and I wake up suddenly to the sound of someone banging on the door. Hard. Boom, 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 boom. I spring out of bed. I look to the window. And that window gives me a view over the front door. We're on the second floor. Nobody's there. Also, nobody's responding. Like, nobody's up answering the door. Nobody else seems to be disturbed by this. My wife is asleep. My son is asleep. And I'm no dummy. I, I I look at the time, and it's just after 3 a.m. 3 a.m. in the morning. And once again, I think if you're listening to this, I don't have to explain this to you, but, you know, it's the witching hour. From midnight to 3, it's when the veil is the thinnest, and, you know, dark entities' powers are at their highest. So for a moment, I do have a brief thought of, was that on the door? Or did... Something knock on my mind. Uh, which, by the way, I've done a podcast. I've done a few podcasts. Um, they were all comedy podcasts, and one of them was called Dave and Jay versus the World. And we had an episode, I think it was called Soul Door. And it was all about this, because I, I was podcasting when this happened. And uh, the soul door was what the demon was knocking on. But it was a comedy-based podcast, so we basically just turned it into a bunch of, uh, you know, demon rape jokes. Uh, so this thing is knocking on me, potentially. I remember having that thought. And then I go back to sleep. Next thing you know, 
boom, 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 boom. I wake up again. And I look to the window. No one's there. I sit back down. No one seems to have notice. And I start to entertain the idea that it's knocking on me. Now, I do want to let you know I'm aware of something called exploding head syndrome, uh, which is this thing that happens to some people when they fall asleep as soon as they're about to drift off all of a sudden they experience something very loud and jarring like someone screaming their name or someone banging on something i even knew this while this was happening because you know i had delved into all this sleep paralysis you know stuff for years and and these things come up i go back to sleep and it happens a third time and on the third time, I open my eyes, and I just kind of sigh, and I go back to sleep. And I think that's all that happened the first night. It was very unsettling. But I didn't bring it up or talk to anybody about it, because I didn't want anybody to worry. And by anybody, I mean my wife. I didn't want to scare my son. I kept it to myself. It really wasn't that significant in any way. I had exploding head syndrome three times in a row. Night two. I'm sleeping and suddenly I feel someone yank my arm up into the air and I wake up and my you know I my arm kind of falls and I look around the room and you know you have a couple of thoughts I I know that sometimes people jerk in their sleep my father did quite a bit of that um and so, you know, I didn't think that at the time. I just thought a lot of people move around in their sleep. I go back to sleep. My arm gets yanked up in the air again. I'm making this connection like, oh, things knocking on my mind. Now it's pulling me off the bed. But there's nothing to do. It's late. I don't know. I can't say for certain I checked the clock this time and, and knew what time it was. But it was late and there's nothing to do. You just tuck your arms, and you go back to sleep. And all of a sudden, my ankle gets pulled off the bed. And I fall back asleep. And then my ankle gets pulled again. And I fall back asleep. And I still don't say anything to anyone. That's the end of that night. And, I mean, what do you say? Uh, anything I say is going to worry my wife. Um, I certainly don't want my son to overhear it. And I'm also in a Jehovah Witnesses house, so the last thing I need to do is be accused of bringing some dark spirit into the house, which I'm inclined to believe there was already something there. It was a very old apartment, and there's a lot of reasons that I won't get into, but I, I think that it was already there. So, night three. Night three is much more upsetting. I'm not woken up by anything. Whatever happens, happens in the dream realm this time. And I have this dream. I can see a dark room. And I can see a figure standing in the center of the room. And this figure is... It's a man. It's bipedal. It's not a man, but it's bipedal. Two legs, two arms, a head. Humanoid. But its skin looks like a slug. Back home in New Jersey, slugs were black and gray. Cheetah print. It looked like that, but it didn't have the slime. <clears throat> but it did have sort of black and gray cheetah print skin. And... It, it was muscular. Not like the Hulk or anything, but m more muscular than me. It was thick. It wasn't cut. didn't have abs and stuff. It was thick. And it had tusks. Not huge ones, but just canines on the bottom jaw that were overlapping the upper lip. In other words, they were 
when its mouth was closed, still sticking out. Big fangs. And it had, like, maraschino cherry eyes. Like, the richest bright red eyes and it was heaving you know like somebody so mad that they're breathing through clenched teeth and their chest is heaving it's expanding and contracting and, and it's a full body movement it's what this thing is doing it's looking at me and it's just boiling over with rage and all around its legs is this thick swirling black mist and I remember seeing it for a while nothing happened it's just this thing's breathing and I'm looking at it in this dark room the room was void of anything it wasn't a room like there was windows and furniture it was just a void space a room insinuates there was walls and a cap like a ceiling there was none of that it was an endless expanse in either direction but that wasn't the point. <laughs> the point was what was happening right in the center. And I don't remember how it ends or anything like that, but I wake up and uh, and when my wife wakes up, she tells me that she had a nightmare, a nightmare that she was paralyzed and she couldn't move anything but her neck a little bit. And she looks over to me and on my chest, pinning me down into the bed, is this monster with red glowing eyes. And I, I, when she says that, it's a bummer, dude. There's not a lot of good things happening when you hear that from your wife. But you still have an obligation to not freak her out. So I keep it to myself. And I just go, wow, that's crazy. And I'm doing a lot of thinking at this point. I'm thinking about it like all day. What do I do about this? It's going to happen again. <laughs> that really sucked. Is the idea that it's going to happen again. But I didn't say anything. I just listened to her story and I said, wow, that's crazy. So. The fourth night. It's actually pretty decent, man. Nothing happens. I go to sleep. I wake up, my wife wakes up, everything's good. My son is on an air mattress to the right of me, and he starts crying even before he wakes up. Before he gets up, he's bawling. And he sits up in bed, we console him, only to find out that the reason he's so upset is because he has a nightmare about a monster with glowing red eyes. And I'm telling you, dude, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. You want to talk about desperation? I was already afraid. And I was already concerned because now my wife is experiencing it. But now for it to extend to my son, I was desperate for it to stop. And so I, I did pretty much the only thing that I could think to do, which was the night of the fifth night before I went to sleep, I prayed to Jesus Christ to stop this and to protect my family. And sure enough, that was it. That particular thing never happened again. And I didn't grow up religious. But man... Who would I be if I ever tried to deny Jesus Christ? That would be the biggest L anybody could take. It's like, yeah, dude, I saved you from greasy demons. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. And the next time I get the opportunity, I'm like, ah, I don't really believe in him. There's 100% something there. And I've used that several times since then. Um... And I'm sure you'll end up hearing those stories as this goes on. But I think it's I think it's okay to say by this point in my life, 
I know these things are real. Um, I've had a UFO experience. I'm sure you'll hear as the show goes on. Plenty of shadow people stuff. Even in the home that I'm currently in. Where I uh, am a pretty recently new homeowner in, in the state of Florida now. Even here, there's been things that other people have seen and correlated with me. And, uh, I mean, all sorts of things. I got stories, guys. I got a lot of interesting stories, and I got a lot of interesting information knocking around in the old noggin. Um, soon, I believe I'm going to have a couple of uh, different episodes. We're going to talk about Flat Earth. We're going to talk about QAnon. We're going to talk about alien abductions with an actual alien abductee. Uh, we're going to talk about numerology and astrology, all sorts of stuff. And um, and we're going to hear a lot of people's paranormal experiences. And I'm really excited to be starting this journey. And I hope that you'll go on it with me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the very first episode of The Raven's Watch. I am your host, David Lee Corbo, a.k.a. The Raven. And uh, don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, leave a comment, upvote the video, subscribe. And uh, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at David underscore Lee underscore Corbo. Follow me on Instagram at The Ravens Watch on Instagram. Um, we have a Reddit page. It's r slash the ravens watch and there we can drop all kinds of stories and theories um and i'm also i've got a discord up the link for that will be in the description in the bio and there we can talk personally um we've got subcategories for conspiracy theory for paranormal experiences all kinds of stuff and uh we'll be able to communicate with one another there and we're going to turn this into something cool and as I learn all these different stories and all these different conspiracy theories and topics, esoteric knowledge and hermetic principles and, you know, Freemasonry and all this stuff, you're going to learn it too, right alongside with me. So once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope to see you next time on The Raven's Watch. Bye-bye. Ah!